Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Hey Jundo, I've got a question for you. I've been wondering about this for a long time. Who is the best Zen dude? The best Zen dude is... Uh, the best all-time Zen dude. I mean, we tend, we tend to say it's Dogen, but there's got to be some better Zen guy out there, right? Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of them. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the superstars. It's like football. You know, we could have those little trading cards for Zen guys. And I, I could trade you, like, you know, you give me a Hakuin and I give you a, a, a Bodhidharma, you know? Yeah, everyone's got their heroes. And the hero is usually the guy who is in your school. Yeah, on your team. Of course. Yeah. You know, Zen folks are just like anyone else. We try to say that we take everything to be just as it is and equal, but we've got favorites. We got stars. We got, you know, our team and your team, sure. We're competitive. Yeah, that's what it is. See, that's what I wanted to lead into. And and what made me think of this topic this weekend is that the Tour de France started on Saturday. Now, this was delayed. It usually starts uh, in the beginning of July. And it's the first big sporting event this year since COVID. The Olympics in your country got canceled. Um yeah. Uh, baseball is playing to empty stadiums in the U.S., soccer over here to empty stadiums. But the Tour de France is out there on the road. And I was thinking, this competition, what would a Zen Tour de France be like? Everyone all going at the same speed and no one crossing the finish line first? No, 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 no. A Zen Tour de France would be just like the Tour de France. You would do your best. You would train. You would push towards the goal. The only difference might be that that's not the only way you look at things. Every inch of the road is also its own goal. And while we push to win, we also have a view of the universe where everything's its own winner. That's the difference. But Zen people, we can be very competitive. You know, the Buddha was a competitive guy. Dogen, type A personality. Really? <laughs> I think so. Okay. okay. And you would know because? Well, just reading their stories. The Buddha, first off, he came from a, a family of leaders. You know, he was trained as a young man to be a king. And he said, I don't want to be a king. I want to go off and, and be, find the meaning of life. But as soon as he did, he started building an organization, and he was a leader. And don't think it was a small organization. He had logistics. He had food to get for the monks every day. They were moving around. He had to deal with kings and, and supporters. He was a mover and shaker. He walked back and forth across India for years, building an organization. 
he was the president of Buddha Inc. <laughs> my, my question just a minute ago was leading into something you told me by email. You said that you used to be a type A person. Well, I was. And, and, and uh, I have to say that uh, probably part of me still is. I, I mean, I went to law school. I was trained as a lawyer. As a lawyer, you're trained to win. You're trained to, to, to fight. You're trained to see things in very material terms. It's all about the money. It's all about whether your client is right or wrong. You're going to win for your client. And it's get ahead. And it's get ahead in the firm. And it's work for years. And I was miserable. I was smoking. I was overweight. I was depressed. And then somebody said, you know, you can put all that down. And you can just be satisfied with things as they are. You don't have to fight. There's nothing in life to fight for. And I said, you know, that's very wise. But then I realized, wait a second. If you just stay like that, you're going to sit here staring at your navel. You're going to starve. So where do you draw the line? Yeah, we, we can't just sit around. You know, you can, you can look at a flower and be content with all things. But the world keeps turning. So the question is, where do you draw the line? So I realize that I'm still a guy who has projects and goals, things to work for. I'd like to build something constructive. So I'm still someone who has dreams and plans, right? But it's a matter of degree. It's a matter of degree. You don't have to be a destructive type A personality. And you don't have to be someone who's just sitting on their lotus leaf, just doesn't care about anything at all. It's Dogen was another one. Ask me about Dogen. Tell me about Dogen. Was he a type A Zen dude? You're darn right. He came from the aristocracy. He was a very smart guy. He was a fellow who wanted to be, how to say, special in his own way. He went to China. You didn't, not everyone got to go to China. That was a, a thing that was very rare. Then he came back from China. He went back into the monastery and he couldn't just be one of the monks in the monastery. He left and he built his own place. And then finally he built a very big place and he had monks. And again, it was a, a, an organization and he was a leader and he wrote and he taught, and he, he had to deal with the elite. It's not a matter that these people are passive, not at all. But if you're going to be competitive, you just have to use your comp competitive spirit in a wise way. Sometimes I get the impression when people are talking about meditation and zazen that they're trying to be better meditators than others. They're trying to do more. and. I mean, there's nothing more paradoxical to me that people who use an app to time how much they sit zazen so they can look at their score at the end of the week and see how they've competed with their friends. This is the brilliance of Shikantaza and why it's perfect for reformed type A personalities like me and Dogen. For a time, we have to sit putting down the goal, putting down the plans, 
putting down the sense that there's something more to do. We sit content. We sit on our lotus leaf as if there is nothing more to achieve except sitting. And it is a relief from the pain inside of constantly needing to run and do and build and get. Because when we sit, there's nothing more to get. We're complete and whole. Okay? Now, the other brilliant part of Shikantaza, though, is we do not just sit there. You got to get up. The bell rings. We get up and we get back to life. And we get back to our work and we get back to our dreams. But now maybe the wisdom of sitting there whole and complete, how to say, illuminates that experience. It's not the same as we were before. And I describe it as having goals without goals. Yes, but these people who gamify it to, to count how many minutes and how many hours they sit, that's not, not, that's not a goal without a goal. That's a goal with an artificial goal, isn't it? I know, and, but I tell people not to do that. I say, you're not in a taxi running a meter. You're not on a basketball court running up the score. When we sit, there's no score, there's no time, there are no points. Sitting itself is the goal line. And then when we get up, the reason I say it's goals without goals is I get back to life where I have goals and dreams, but the feeling of completion and wholeness is still with me. So it's like a part of me still is working, there are things to do, places to go, people to see. But part of me knows there's no place in need of going. Everything to see is right here. And you can experience life both ways at once. And that is the medicine for the kind of person like me who before didn't know how to sit still. It is a big change. Um, I, I had a corporate job for many years. I worked in finance and suit and tie, subways, buses to and from work, toing and froing, and I smoked, I drank a lot of coffee and all. I, uh, by the way, I'm not giving up coffee. I still drink coffee. I draw the line there. I'm not giving up my coffee. But, you know, the world needs competitive people. But I think now we re literally don't know when to stop. We've gone overboard. We need people who discover things. We need people who build things. Uh, the Buddha was never against rich people who built something, earned money from their farms, from their businesses. But he said, use your money well and don't be addicted to the competition and don't go overboard then and become angry and frustrated and violent with other people to win. Don't misuse your power. Use your power well, use your money well, be competitive, but don't be an addict. And that's very wise. We still need people to do things in the society, but when they build, they should build good things. When they have power, they should use their power in a good way. Do you watch baseball? A little bit, yeah. So I find it interesting that Japan is such a baseball country. You would think that, um, you know, it's a mainly American sport and it's gone into sort of Central America. But Japan is very baseball. Um, I think last year I was reading a book by Pico Iyer. He's a travel journalist. 
He's great. And he's written a few books about Japan yeah. where he's lived for about 30 years. And, and he told a story, I don't remember all the details, an American baseball coach had been brought into Japan to coach a team and the team won a lot more games, but no one was happy because they weren't really playing to win as much as they were playing to get along. And he was also using as an example the fact that he played in a table tennis club for many years with lots of people. And the goal there wasn't to win. It was to, just right. to enjoy the game. I know that story. And he said that everybody took turns winning and losing. Yeah. Japan is not a panacea. It's not a perfect society, but there is much more uh, of an emphasis that everybody should get a turn. Everybody should get a share. And uh, maybe that's that's something we're forgetting in society. In the monastery, everybody had enough and everybody worked hard, but everybody worked for everybody else and nobody was left behind. And in our society these days, some people are maybe getting too much and some people are being left behind. So if we are going to be competitive and we are going to build things, we have to make sure that everybody in the society, which is our, our big monastery, gets taken care of enough. So you're the head honcho at Treeleaf. Is there competition to... Um, eventually follow in your footsteps or people who might go off on their own? Is there an internal competition for you among your peers, other Zen teachers? Boy, that's an interesting question. Well, uh, I'm irreplaceable. so that, Of course. Uh, I of worked course. for someone for a while who told me that the cemeteries are full of people who are irre irreplaceable. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, that's an interesting thing. I would say that in any church, there's church politics. And if you look at some of the large Buddhist churches in Asia, there was everything you would find in corporate infighting and factions and power plays. Our little tree leaf, our little place, you know, I really don't get a sense of that. Uh, there's nothing really to fight over. Uh, there's not a lot of territory. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> there's it's, no money involved. Yeah, and it's virtual. It's different. Pe people don't have a territory to claim. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, I, as I said, I was a lawyer, and I did get pulled into a couple of Buddhist, how do we should say it, disputes. There were certain Buddhist groups, and they said, you're a lawyer. We need a lawyer to come in, and you're a Buddhist. Can you help us? And I said, okay. I went in there. And the people were fighting. They, they couldn't agree. They couldn't stand each other anymore. So that uh, they were fighting over things like, who gets the Buddha statue? They had a nice Buddha statue. <laughs> you know. So the joke was, the guy said, can you go to court and get the Buddha statue? And You know, in, in the law, we have attachment. You yeah. attach property. So I was going to attach the Buddha statue. <laughs> that was the big joke. But, no, you know, it's like any, any group of people. Buddhist groups are made of people. People will fight for their territory. I'm very proud in our Sangha that I don't think anyone is fighting for anything. Uh, probably uh, when I go, uh, everyone will go their own way, and that will be the end of it. That's a nice thing. It's like a family with kids. Mom and dad, it's, it's, they, they retire, they pass away, and the kids go off and have their own lives. And that, that's what I hope for our Sangha. Let this be my will and testament for the future <laughs> of my organization 
When I go, everyone, you're free. Go your way. Well, what about in the broader community? Is there a sort of, it's not a competition to save souls the way, you know, Christians might do it. But is there a competition to have a Buddhist center that's a little bit nicer, a little bit cleaner? Um, maybe it's got a bigger statue. It's got, you know, more more members. Is there a sort of competition? You know, yeah. I'm saying uh, there's always a guy builds a temple and he wants his temple is bigger than the other temple. It's got more gold. It's got a bigger statue. Yeah, that that does happen, and uh, especially uh, in some of the larger Buddha organizations, Buddhist organizations, there's a lot of money involved, donation. A lot of what's going on in in China, man. Those people are coming in from Taiwan and Hong Kong. A lot of people have money now. They're spending it on Buddhist organizations, and they're building huge complexes with uh, towers and statues and halls. Uh, and it can lead to some corruption too. Uh, I'm going to talk very openly. The famous Shaolin Temple uh, went public. I believe they they went uh, on the stock market, and the uh, abbot has been accused of uh, how to say uh, uh, how the, doing what people do when they have access to too much money and power. And uh, it's not it's more of a tourist organization than it is a a Buddhist temple. That happened in the West. I haven't seen a lot of financial scandals. I haven't seen, uh, you know, we've had those sex scandals. We've spoken about them before. But I I haven't seen in the Zen world too many real gurus, people abusing power, a lot of cult-like activity. So I'm saying we're we're actually doing pretty good. Probably someone could remind me of a couple of exceptions. But, uh, you know, most Zen people, they, they walk the walk. They talk about not being too materialistic, not being too power-oriented. And I would say the vast majority of people are keeping that promise. So what about in everyday life? Should we be competitive at certain levels? I mean, everyone wants to do better for their family, for example. And there is a competition for a better job and resources. But if we want to help everyone then should we not be competitive? Should we just accept where we are? No, no, that's what I'm saying about Dogen and the Buddha. And and, and I repeat this here every week. Zen folks see life two or more seemingly conflicting ways at once, but we do it without conflict. It's as if one eye of yours has goals and dreams and projects and you're dedicated and you're working to it, and the other eye is content and knows there's nothing in need of doing, nothing to work for. And we can experience life both ways. And it's a wonderful way to be. I can work on my projects, but not be, and work hard and be dedicated to the outcome, but not be that attached to the outcome. I can work hard for something and be content each step by step along the way. I can work for my project, and if it's a success, I don't go overboard with feeling how great I am. And if it's a failure, I don't go overboard with feeling how terrible it is. I accept. You can do both. And I think we need to do both because right now we're too attached to winning, success, keeping up with the Joneses, having the best car, the best, uh, how to say, getting the next promotion. And that's where our self-worth is. 
we need to learn to work and be content more. That's the only thing that's going to save this planet, if you ask me. Mm. And I mean that. So rather than always looking ahead really far, um, maybe it's better to look in little steps and make progress in little steps instead of looking toward things that are out of reach and just making steps one step at a time and accepting them and appreciating them before moving on. Well, do the work that's in front of you. If you have a, a job to do that's in front of you, do that with dedication. And, and you know, the Japanese uh, craftsmen do fine work, whatever they have to do that day. But there's nothing wrong with thinking long-term either. And there's nothing wrong with being content too. We can do it all. But if we, if we don't stop and slow down a little bit for the environment, for our own mental health, for the society where and no one, the richer we get, the more unhappy people seem to be. If we don't learn to be a little bit more content along the way, we're going to be miserable. Now, I still work. I have a job. I'm a translator. But, you know, every day I learn to stop and smell the roses. It's not all about the money. As a matter of fact, I'm very fortunate. I stopped my career at a certain point. I could actually work harder. I could make more money. As a translator, I can work as much as I want. The more I work, the more I make. At a certain point, I kind of said, this is enough. My family has food. The kids have shoes. They're going to school. That's enough. It's not worth me to devote more time just to have a bigger bank account. And we need to, I think, structure a lot of the world basically the same way, if you ask me. As someone who also worked as a translator for many years, I know exactly what you're saying, that you could keep working nonstop. Because if you know your job, there will always be people who want to hire you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think back to the first law firm I ever worked for, and there was this guy. I used to bum cigarettes off of him because he was a two-pack or three-pack-a-day smoker, and he always had some cigarettes in his, his drawer, so I always could get cigarettes. And the guy was always in the office till midnight. And he was a young guy, but he looked 20 years older than he is. I hope, I, I don't know if he's still with us. I hope no one's listening and he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> but uh, the guy looked 20 years older than he is. As far as I knew, he had no social life. He just wanted to get ahead and be partner. And uh, that's the guy. One day he had a heart attack. And they said, you can't do that anymore. So he said, okay, uh, then plan B. I'm going to be what I always wanted to be, an archaeologist. Mm -hmm. He wanted to go dig things up in the desert. Okay. So I ran into him two years ago. Not to, uh, two years later, I should say. He was happy. He looked 20 years younger. He was making one-tenth of what he had been making before. But it, it was the best. The heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to this guy. Where do we go from here, Roshi? I don't know. Time is money. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at 
zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.